It's the animal control report time. <laughs> Good morning or afternoon or whatever time you're listening. And how are you doing, Bishop? I'm I'm pretty good. I still haven't gotten a copy of your country song. Well, that's because this is three weeks after the country song was released. So go to your local <laughs> Facebook or Instagram page and find it there. You know, for our listeners that maybe it's your first time tuning in, I am Daniel Ettinger, one of your hosts with... Ashley Bishop. And if it's your first time, man, you've got some catching up to do. Well, you know, but it probably is someone's first time. Like, we shouldn't, yeah. you know, there's a no, lot of No, but I'm just saying, like, there's, there's really good content to go listen to. And me making just goofy statements. It's probably anyway, check part. out our website. That is humanemain.com. Uh, you can find the latest training announcements, blogs, and podcasts there as well. And some great merchandise. You know, we actually have some fun stuff, some new keychains that are up there, and some, you know, t-shirts, etc. So if you want to grab some fun stuff, check it out at humanemain.com. Also, you know you can leave Google reviews for Keep It Humane Maine. That's pretty fun. So if you have Google, I think everybody has Google. Uh, just Hey, Google. Google. Just Google Keep It Humane Maine, and you should be able to leave a Google review there. But don't forget to leave reviews at the podcast sites like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You know what's also incredibly important other than the actual reviews? Word of mouth. Yeah, good point. Tell people about us. Tell people, you know, what you think and see if they'd be interested because not everybody actually... The reviews help us pop up earlier. Mm -hmm. It's true. But... Not everybody actually reads the reviews to see whether they want to listen. Um, so, so tell a friend to tell a friend. Yep. Please. So uh, speaking of friends. You have some? Well, I kind of made some. <laughs> I, there's a, I had a, a bunch of best friends, and I don't know oh, if God. I'm friends with them anymore. And I don't want to get too much into detail, but you should read this blog that I wrote on our website or on my LinkedIn page. That's Daniel Ettinger. Or the website again is humanemain.com. And, you know, I was just talking about uh, the title of the the blog was uh, and is no chill. And I just kind of wanted to talk about some of the misconceptions or misunderstandings of the of the word no kill. So I went into that. So if you're, you're feeling up to it and you want to read it, I actually did a follow up video as well. And, uh, you know, again, I don't want to euthanize anything like that's not my goal. My goal is to, you know place every animal that is safe and and healthy and i think that's mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of most organizations goals i just don't go around saying things that may be misleading so straight from the straight from the horse's mouth right here and don't beat a dead horse so we'll just stop that no pun intended <laughs> and we're just going to jump in and introduce we're just going to introduce our guest just to keep it you know keep it humane dr g dr michelle gonzalez how are you today I am doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for staying on the podcast while we did all that, <laughs> while we set up everything. Doctor, So, Dr. G, you have your own podcast called The Animal Welfare Junction. But beyond that, uh, you're a graduate of the Ohio State University. Is that correct? The Yes, the Ohio State University class of 1999. So a long, long okay, time cool. ago. Yeah. Can you tell our, just Y2K kind of let our baby. listeners, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> our listeners a little bit of your background and kind of how you got into veterinary medicine and, and then forensics as well. And your podcast, 
It's here at all. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, I mean, if my story is kind of like, you know, like a lot of people that grow up saying, I want to be a vet, but um, it's like as early as five years of age. That's all I wanted to do. Um, I never mm. changed. I never wavered on, on that. Um, and I don't have any family members that are doctors or veterinarians, animals. I grew up in Puerto Rico. Animals were outside animals. So, mm. um, so it was kind of. Yeah, right. So it was it was literally kind of like some people say, oh, some people have a calling. I feel that that it was like I was meant to to do this. So I went to undergrad at Michigan State University and then I went to the Ohio State University for veterinary school. And I did an internship in uh, medicine, surgery and critical care at the University of Missouri before coming back to Ohio. And I worked in general practice for about six years. And during that time, I saw the problems that shelters were having and struggling with overpopulation and euthanasia due to lack of space. And there were so many problems. And I felt that I needed to do something. So I created the Rascal Unit, which is a mobile, accessible and affordable care uh, veterinary clinic on wheels that travels throughout the state of Ohio. So primarily offering low-cost spay-neuter vaccinations and that kind of stuff. But I've also always had a real interest in criminology. And it was the perfect combination to do criminalistics and merge it with veterinary medicine. And the University of Florida created that awesome master's in veterinary forensics. So as soon as I saw that, I was like, I need to, I need to do this. I need to get in on this. So in 2017, I obtained my master's in veterinary forensics. And in doing that, then you start getting into the, okay, the animals, you're investigating the animals, but there are people attached to these animals. And how do the people component fit into animal, animal welfare? So I did a master's in forensic psychology to try to evaluate that side of it. So the Animal Welfare Junction, which is the podcast that I just started this year, is basically a way to bring all facets of animal welfare and human welfare together because it all ties in. You cannot really do one and ignore the other. Some people go into veterinary medicine because I hate people. I just want to deal with animals. Mm -hmm. Well, animals come with people. So we have yeah. to be involved with everything. So I try to do things like having um, cases about forensic cases, but then also talk about welfare in general. Like I did a podcast on wildlife forensics so or sorry, wildlife medicine. So just, you know, trying to educate people. I love education clearly since I graduated <laughs> 24 years ago and I'm still in school. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm currently doing a master's in forensic science because I just want to keep learning more. Um, so, so yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell where I started and where I'm at. That's awesome. As far as the uh, veterinary forensics down in Florida goes, is that only for DVMs or can do they have any kind of program for vet techs or anything like that? It is a very inclusive program. So it is open to anybody. So uh, animal control officers can take it. Uh, technicians okay. can take it. Veterinarians can take it. So it is open to anybody with an interest in veterinary forensics. And what's the name of that program again? 
Uh, it's the University of Florida Master's in Veterinary Forensics. They also have okay. a certificate program, which is uh, a short version of it. So it is something that that people that have an interest but don't want to necessarily commit to a master's program can do and obtain really good resources from that. Okay. Awesome. And any chance that it's virtual as well, or is it all in person? No, it's all online. So I oh. went to University so of Florida from Ohio. Yes, exactly. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And before we go so, further, I want people to just check out your website. It's forensics.vet, not net, forensics.vet, V-E-T. Correct. Check that out. You can find the podcast there and there's some other information as well on your on your website, which is really resourceful. Speaking of resources, if I have a case, I'm an animal control officer and with a limited budget, and it's a case that I think that is mm, somewhat, let's say there's blunt force trauma or I, I believe there's abuse. How do I get, can you work that as far as from an expert witness standpoint? Is that something you're doing currently or something you're working towards? Yeah, it's something that I'm working on. Uh, I have, because most of what I do is a spay neuter clinic. I have okay. a lot of time that I have to devote to that. And then I kind of do the forensics on the side. So uh, my son, I have a 17-year-old. He calls it my side hustle. So, um, <laughs> what, so I will work with different animal control organizations, uh, as small as local rural organizations, and as big as I've worked with the Humane Society of the United States on some large-scale cases. Um, okay. In providing the veterinary side of it and then being able to help with the investigation and then be able to help with preparation for a court case, and then sure. to you know go to court if needed. I've yet to go to court to testify. Everything has been resolved prior to. Um, but yeah, that's something that I want to definitely do more. And I am very willing to consult with anybody. I have my email address, which is cujodvm at gmail.com. Anybody that has, especially veterinarians. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, anybody that has, uh, like, especially veterinarians, right? Like veterinarians are really often concerned about getting involved in these cases because they don't want to go to court. They're afraid of what people are going to say. They're afraid of losing clients and mm. it doesn't, it's not that bad. So I am more than willing to talk to veterinarians and technicians that have cases that they're not sure about to help them prepare and, you know, help, help animals and help the community. I was actually told this from a training one of the officers that I work with went to and they said the ASPCA said there's more like the studies show that if a agency like a veterinary clinic reports animal cruelty, they're more reliable or, or, or people in the community appreciate them more than if they don't report animal cruelty. And, and I think there's been that long kind of client patient privilege that veterinarians think of that like well if i rat out this client then i'm gonna lose business in the future and i don't think that's true i think you know the reality is helping an animal in need is more important than protecting somebody that may have abused it right absolutely and in ohio a few years ago uh they passed uh the house bill 33 which is mandatory reporting and mm -hmm. i went actually in front of the uh legislators to give testimony in favor of passing that, that law, because I have had cases that I have seen where veterinarians have 
very solid evidence that there is abuse and they've been afraid to come forward because of being wrong, because of getting in trouble, because of, you know, all sorts of different things. And sometimes the veterinarian is the first one to see the evidence of abuse, whether it be child abuse, elder abuse, domestic violence. We sometimes see the the injury to the animal, the cruelty to the animal. And by investigating that, we can look further and, again, help more than just the animal. So the mandatory mm-hmm. reporting was great because it takes away that part of, I don't know if I should. No, by law now, you have to report it. That's, that's they have amazing. That, yeah, they have that in Colorado, too. And, and I've run into this several times where I would call a vet clinic and say, hey, I need you know, not like, Hey, I need records, but Hey, we're working a case. There's a, you know, alleged animal cruelty. Can you please send over the records? And for whatever reason, and this doesn't happen with every clinic, but it has happened quite a bit. I I can count on both hands. How many times it happens? Uh, uh, we're not sure if we can release that information. I'm like, time out. There's no HIPAA rule. And according to title 12 in the Colorado revised statutes, you have to give this information. And so it's really just educating our veterinarians, right? Educating them on, uh, what the, rule or the law is, and, and really we're only asking for that information to better a case that, you know, may involve, may involve some sort of animal cruelty. And, and I think that's our end goal for a lot of us in this industry. Yeah, absolutely. I've had the, the opportunity to work with some really awesome humane agents that, you know, the way that they approach cases is not by knocking on a door and saying, hi, you're in trouble. I heard that you're abusing your animal. It's more, they go to the door and say, hey, this is a welfare check. You know, the the veterinarian has concerns about what's happening with your pet, and we want to see if we can help you. Uh, You know, changing that mentality of an animal control officer as being like somebody aggressive coming in to take your dog and understanding Mm -hmm. that humane agents are coming to see if, make sure that everything is okay and see what resources you may need. And yeah, if you are, if you're a criminal, and you're doing something wrong, something's going to happen and it should, but trying to change that mentality in general. Mm-hmm. We, we are not the dog catchers anymore. Well, I think you bring right. up a valid Absolutely. point though. And, and, and that's just it is people that whether, whatever law enforcement job that you're in, if you're coming at it, the approach in a situation that is like, over the top authoritative and aggressive, you're, you're just going to lose as far as like the respect from the community. Now there are times where safety is important and you have to protect that maybe by giving commands and being more authoritative. But for the most part, for 90% of our cases, you knock on that door and it's like, Hey, I'm Daniel with animal control. How you doing today? Right. You st- establish that rapport. Right. And then it's like, Hey, we got a report or there's an allegation of this, blah, blah, blah. And then you just keep it moving. But you create a, a like a real conversation with somebody versus you know, just coming at them with this over the top approach. And I don't think, you know, I think more and more we're seeing people take that approach than that old school. Let's just, you know, be a tough guy um, or tough gal and and try to, you know, get, get um, a resolution that way. I mean, I can even attest to that. I've got right now, Monday, I'm going to go back and declare two dogs dangerous from a household where, They've already had one declared prohibited dangerous and the other one had it not been euthanized also would have been declared dangerous. And I had him on the phone and letting him know that I'd be coming in Monday to do that. And they're like, we know, we know you're doing your job and you got to protect everybody and, Mm -hmm. and we're okay with that. We're not mad at you. You know, so having that rapport is fantastic. 
Um, Dr. G, I got a question for you. You, I mean, you've obviously have extensive knowledge across the board here. Um, and we all kind of have that, that one case that we're like, we would prefer to take this over a barking dog call. If you had your choice of your ideal investigation to be involved with, do you have a type of investigation that you would enjoy more? Uh, so my, my favorite thing to look into is animal hoarding. And I think that was one of the main things behind my forensic psychology degree was that there are so many different types of animal hoarding and it's a, it's a crime, but it's also a mental health condition and it is just not handled properly. So I want to be involved in more cases of animal hoarding so that we can understand the difference between the different types of hoarders and address them appropriately and then provide them with help going forward to prevent it from happening. I mean, they have near 100% recidivism. So mm-hmm. it's just not sort of managed properly at all. Yep. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. Yep. So it's, you know, you take, you take a person, uh, I had a case a few years ago that they get a fine and then you can't have a dog for five years and then that's it. Well, yeah, but they still get, they still find ways to have a dog during that five years. Right. Exactly. Uh, you know, there's hoarding's fascinating to me as well. And I'm glad you brought that up. And when you think about it, there's three types of hoarders, right? You have your mm-hmm. rescuers, your overwhelmed caregivers, and then your exploiters, people that, you know, uh, maybe try right. to make money off of puppies, etc. And then it hoarding is actually part of the DSM. So the, the di, wow, the diagnostic mm-hmm. ser, services, no statistical manual. Thank you for correcting myself, Bishop. That's <laughs> <laughs> so what happens when you're not here. I, I get used to correcting myself because normally you correct me. The diagnostical, the diagnostic, whatever statistical manual outlines hoarding, not, not specific to animal hoarding, but hoarding as a mental health disorder. And so when you treat mental health disorders with criminal, a criminal approach, it may backfire, right? So just, just send, all right, fine. It will backfire. And so if you send somebody to jail or, you know, you're writing a summons, et cetera, but you're not, you're not really following the, the mental health part of it, they will reoffend. And, and like Dr. G said, it's 99 to hundred percent of recidivism without any intervention. And so I teach this all the time when I talk about hoarding is, when you have a hoarding case, you know, you can remove all the animals. People do this all the time. They're like, well, I just want to help and remove the animals. That, that's fine. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to do any sort of criminal action, I get that. But what's going to happen is you remove the animals and maybe clean up the home in a few weeks or, or months, it's going to be back to how it was. And so you may have to charge criminally in order to get the mental health evaluation and treatment to stick. And so that's something that I really want to hammer home to people is if you don't currently have that in some some state laws have that, uh, and you can check that out at ALDF.org. That's the Animal Legal Defense Fund. They actually do rankings every year for the uh, state, the states and, and where they rank based on their animal cruelty laws, et cetera, and things like this, things like that require mental health evaluations and treatment. And so I always, always say, you know, talk to your prosecutors and let them know. And, and you'd be surprised. And Bishop, I don't know. If, I, I feel like this is something you do, but you'd be surprised. A lot of animal control officers just don't talk to their prosecutors. They don't have a relationship. And so they'll, they'll throw a case in and then that's it. They don't have that conversation. And so what I always recommend is before you, 
couple things before you just throw a case, try to have a conversation with your prosecutor. And if you can't have that conversation, your cover letter to your packet to basically what you're submitting to court, your cover letter should outline things. And one of the main things in these hoarding cases is say, Hey, like, you know, put some stats up there and, and you can get with experts to get some of these stats. Uh, I'll be happy to share. I'm sure Dr. G could share and, and several others and, and just put some stats that here's why hoarding is important to, to really approach from a mental health angle and have that as your, you know, your cover sheet. And then hopefully your prosecutors get it and hopefully they reach out to you to further that discussion. There's so much more though, that you could potentially do with that. Dan is absolutely contact your prosecutors and, and depending on my case, I actually try to talk to my prosecutors before I get to that point so that I have everything that they want. Um, but we've talked about it once and we've talked about it a billion times on the show is you need to go in with a community approach, if you will. If you've got a um, healthcare center, if you've got a crisis team, if you have some kind of mental health, I want to say a majority of the time you're going to be looking at um, an elderly couple or person um, that you're usually dealing with in this kind of situation. Reach out to your adult protective services. Reach out to your healthcare centers. Find everybody that you can to go in all at once so everybody gets a good glimpse of what's going on. And you can work together. It is not you alone doing this job. I, I Reach out to those other resources. Mul so multidisciplinary approach, right? And that's that's exactly what you're saying is you can't go in it alone. And there's like there, in Denver when I was there, they had what's called the, the hoarding task force. And it wasn't specific to animal hoarding. It was specific to hoarding. And so they well, would... I was just going to say nine times out of 10, if you have animal hoarding, you have other types of hoarding. It, you're not yeah. just specific to that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, what I have found, no, look, what I have found though, is that that's one of the importance, uh, one of the important things about knowing the difference between overwhelmed caregivers and rescuer hoarders, because in my experience, rescuer hoarders are the true hoarders that have this mental health issue and they object hoard. Whereas a lot of overwhelmed caregivers are not necessarily object hoarders. They are people that are not necessarily doing it because they are have a severe mental health problem. It's because they're truly concerned about what's going to happen to these animals. They don't know where to take them. They don't want to euthanize them. They don't want to set them free, but they don't have assistance. And knowing that an overwhelmed caregiver, I can go to their home and I can say, okay, I'm going to give you assistance, veterinary assistance. Uh, you know, remove some of the animals, give you a number of animals that you can manage. And I have worked with people like that, that are very open to help as long as they know mm -hmm. that the animals are not going to be harmed, you know, that we're not just going to take them away and take them to the pound and put them down. Whereas the rescuer hoarders, those people think that they're the only ones that can take care of these animals and they will not get rid of them. And you go into their homes and those are the homes that you walk in and there's just this tiny little pathway covered in dog poop that you can barely get around and they have just objects just floor to ceiling because they're accumulating animals and they are accumulating um, or objects so it's really important to understand the difference and understand the approach to to all the different types 
Absolutely. And, and that's, what's important to know that you have, there's resources available for people. So uh, reach out, you know, check out Dr. G's website. If you need some assistance, again, that's forensics.vet. Obviously we can help you here at the animal control report. I teach classes on hoarding and I, you know, I'm not a hoarder myself, but uh, <laughs> I know some. So, but in all seriousness, like it's, it is a mental health thing and it, it should be addressed appropriately. Just curious. What is your favorite object that you've seen at a hoarding home? Dr. Ooh. G, I'll start with you. Ooh. Um, I, geez, that is going to be, that's going to be hard. There's a lot of there's, stuff. It, there's just so much. I mean, I just recently was in a hoarding case and there was like bags of fertilizer and, uh, all sorts of stuff inside of the home that made no sense and the people were living in there. Um, so, I mean, I've just seen some really odd things, so I don't know that I have a, that I have a favorite thing, but let me ask you this. Yeah. You just, Ooh, yes. What percentage of homes that you've been in that are hoarding homes have sheets on their bed? Um, I would say the, I was recently in one that the bedroom was the only clean area of the house. So the whole house was horrible. People had to be in and out within 10 minutes because the nitrogen levels were so high that you could barely breathe. But then as you walk through this whole pile of poop everywhere, uh, spider webs all over the place. I mean, it was horrible. And then you get all the way to the end. Uh, Cats. And then you get all the way to the end of the house to this little corner and they had this bedroom and there were no animals in the bedroom. Uh, They had a little dog in a cage, no cats in the bedroom, and it was clean. It was full of objects, but it was clean. So that's the only time that I have seen like a rescue hoarder situation like that. All the other ones, yeah, no clean bed sheets. Uh, There's the one case that I worked in in uh, Athens County, Ohio, there were two or three beds uh, that was just the mattress and there were piles of feces. Just, it was like a volcano of poop on these mattresses. And I then the woman that. was just sleeping I in a little that. cot in the living room. Uh, yeah. I those, if I could only work hoarding cases for the rest of my career, done, done, done. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. All, that's yeah. all I want to do. Yep. Can I, I have to answer your question, Dan, to my Please. favorite. That's called, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it was on a large property that had multiple outbuildings. And as I was walking past the exterior of one of the buildings, mind you, there's like weeds two feet above my head. It was crazy. It was a jungle. I was like, huh, I think that's what I think it is, but I need to find the interior of the building. So I, I, it took me a bit to actually find where the building was for this particular thing that was jutting out of the building mind you we were finding skeletons all over and then human skeletons no Uh animal skeletons all over but there was randomly all over the yard again in this jungle shoes like you would see one shoe like female shoes oh and when i saw this thing jutting out of the building i got really really worried because there was an incinerator oh (laughs) <laughs> on the so, property. On the property. 
Are they burning animals? No, I he was using it for garbage. Oh. But I got really, really worried because I'm like, there's there's all these feminine shoes, but there's like only one shoe. So I had to open it up and make sure that, you know, I didn't happen to see any human carcasses. Human remains, yeah. <laughs> or yeah, remains, sorry. Uh but <laughs> yeah, there was there was an incinerator on the property. That's incredible. Mine is a little immature teenage boy moment. It was early on one of our first hoarding cases, and it actually was uh, one of our supervisors. She found it first. Um, It was the purple vibrator vibrator right next to the bed. And, of of course, being, you know, very immature and just young in the industry, I got a kick out of that. No pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I think we've all probably been there had that giggle moment or the (laughs) tomahawk live trap has been manufacturing humane animal capture and handling equipment since 1925 they work directly with animal control officers around the world to develop and improve their products so that they're as safe and efficient as possible save 10 percent on your next order by using discount code dcac report visit them online at www.livetrap.com or call them at 1-800-272-8727 Talk a little bit, Dr. G, about some of the forensic stuff that you want to start to do in the future. Like, is this, do you want to, outside of the aspect of Ohio itself, do you want to do some stuff nationally? Do you want to go back to Puerto Rico and help there? Like, what are your, what are your main goals regarding forensic veterinary work? So, yeah, I want to get involved in different cases and kind of wherever I'm needed. So, you know, clearly I'm doing a lot of stuff within the state of Ohio, but I was the HSUS when they did the investigation into the Invigo um, organization mm. that had the 4,000 beagles. I had the opportunity of going now, there and helping with the we, field. Yeah. We had da- uh, uh, Daphna Nakhmanovich on from PETA. That... How could you say that name, Dan, of all the names? What do you mean? But that like one easy? just came off your... Well, yeah. Daphna, yeah, I don't know. We just have a connection. Did you work with PETA too? Because that was their... From what Daphna said, that was kind of their investigation um, originally, and then um, it kind of got, you know, the animals got uh, moved around through HSUS. Right, yeah. I don't know exactly how the whole thing, I was not part of everything from the very beginning. I was part of the, hey, we're going there, we're going to do examinations, we think there's going to be like 4,000 beagles, so uh, do you want to come and do field exams? So, and wow. you had to get them out in two months. Yeah, well, it was actually like four to five days that we had for to do all the examinations. So there was wow. a team of, I want to say, like know, probably about 10 veterinarians, 10 to 13 veterinarians to get all of these exams done. Um, so, and I've never been to Virginia, so I was like, yeah, let's let's go. Let's get it done. So um, it was it was really interesting. I had the opportunity to take a couple of my techs with me. So they were able to experience that. Um, I also participated with HSUS in a large scale dog fighting, alleged dog fighting uh, investigation that is still in process in South Carolina. So, you know, it, it was really different. I've never been involved in an actual dog fighting investigation. So being able to see firsthand what goes on, what happens, uh, being able to examine the animals on the field and then the intake that was that was really cool. Um, things that I have worked on in Ohio, 
have been I've been part of a couple of starvation cases where the animals have yeah. died and they called to say, hey, we need to know if this animal died of starvation or if it was sick, like what the circumstances were. Um, so so, yeah, I just want to work on on whatever forensic cases need help. Talk about you, you talked about dogfighting growing up in Puerto Rico. How exposed were you to cockfighting? Um, quite a bit indirectly. So I had family members that were involved in it. So growing up to me, it was just something normal that something normal that happens. And I didn't like it because animals are getting hurt, but it was more of a personal, you know, at least I thought of it as a personal, well, I don't like it because I have these thoughts or whatever, but it's not, Mm -hmm. not okay. And as I have been involved in forensics, and with it being illegal here, then I look at where we're at in Puerto Rico and I see that there's a long way to go because it's so ingrained into the culture that people just think that it is okay. And they have these cockfighting facilities right off the road and the police are actually helping navigate traffic so that people can attend. I mean, it's like a boxing match. And it's, they recently it's did kind of make it illegal illegal there though right like they you can't it's not something you can do anymore they they shut it down i want to say it was either before or during covid yeah well see but yet i was there doing a spay neuter um event uh just what like two months ago and there was a cockfighting happening just down the road from where we were at wow And I mean, it's illegal in all 50 states here. And I want to say that like some states are trying to almost, I don't want to misquote myself, but decriminalize it. So make it like a $25 fine versus it being a felony. And I can't recall what state that is. So that, yeah. And it's animal abuse is animal abuse. And I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's almost like people think that it's not as bad as dog fighting because it's birds, right? And some people think, well, it's a bird, it's not a dog. But we need well, to understand that this, just... Yeah, huh? the difference in this culture is people eat birds, right? People right. don't eat dogs here. Right, exactly. So it's it's all the mentality of a bird is kind of seen as a lesser creature than a dog. So mm-hmm. it's it's bad, but it's well, not as bad. And the other problem is, too, is, you know, what else is going along with that cockfighting or dogfighting, for that matter? What other drugs, gambling, um, trafficking, anything like that is going on with it? So it's it's a much larger problem that, you know, looking at things like the link and um, things like that, where there's so much more involved that we need to get our lawmakers and our prosecutors to understand that there are all these other connections and that's why they should be, you know, interested in going after these people. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's jump into the animal welfare junction, your podcast. I know we talked about it a little bit. It's available everywhere that podcasts are downloadable. Yes. Yeah. It is available everywhere uh, through Animal Welfare Junction. Uh, Searching that on wherever, whatever service people like to use. Found it on Spotify already. All right. Perfect. (laughs) And, you know, just jumping into that, uh, 
you know, it sounds like we'll look at a, cu- a couple of your titles, a couple of episodes. So like episode, I like this one, uh, behavioral euthanasia, euthanasia episode yes. four. Uh, talk a little bit about what, what, why you brought that title and that topic on your show so early and, and just let's, let's just jump into it. Cause I think it's important that we have that discussion. Yeah. So one of the things that I did before I started doing the podcast was I went on my Facebook page and I said, I'm starting a podcast. What kind of things do you guys want to listen about? Right. Because this is a podcast about education and for the public. So it's not as much about what I want to talk about, but what people want to hear about. And that was one of the things that was brought up was behavioral euthanasia, because there have been a lot of cases of animals that are adopted and their bite histories are not disclosed or Mm -hmm. rescues and shelters that are spending a lot of effort and resources on aggression. And they are not putting as much effort and attention to the other animals in the, in the shelters. And I work with a lot of rescues. I work with a lot of dog shelters and they are criticized because they euthanize something. Whereas there are other places that say that they're no killed are not transparent with their numbers and people say, oh, well, you should be more like X, Y, and Z. So the whole idea of doing a podcast on behavioral euthanasia was to offer the viewpoint from the, uh, the, the shelter that is limited intake the dog pound that is not limited intake, and then from an individual who is a foster who has had hundreds of dogs that has had to euthanize for behavior. And this was somebody that had the the resources, the finances to do everything. Like she did everything possible. And in the end still had to euthanize these dogs for behavior because they were a danger. So I'm trying to use the podcast as a way to explain to people that no we don't want to kill every every animal that we see we definitely don't want to kill healthy animals but we have to take into consideration the health of the animal and that includes the mental health of the animal Mm -hmm. and then we need to take into consideration the potential concern for the welfare of humans and the welfare of other animals so that was the 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 driving force behind it i am very very for I hate to say it this way, but I'm very for the euthanasia of a severely aggressive animal instead of just warehousing it. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's where I'm at, obviously. And and so what causes the the issues or the feedback that I get from some of, some of the people in the industry that use these slogans, save them all and, and no kill is it almost seems like there's naivety as far as not thinking that that causes divisiveness and that we beat no pun intended, but we beat to death. We beat to death the, the slogan and how it's misrepresenting. And it's sad to me because it's as simple as moving away from moving away from that. Cause what I think happens is you have people that may not be part of these organizations that have these resources and think they need to be no kill because that's what the community wants, but they don't understand how to accomplish no kill in a humane way. And so we're seeing these warehouses, warehousings of animals or uh, dogs that are aggressive or cats for that part, you know, living in a, in a kennel uh, for the rest of their life and et cetera. I want to ask you, is there a definition? So 
I want to shout out my 11 year old who taught me about the term zoocosis because I didn't know what the hell that meant. Um, and she, she did a project on it. Uh, so zoocosis is basically an animal that's in a zoo setting. So a wild animal in a zoo setting that uh, reverts to like, it's almost like a depression stage where it can't exhibit normal behavior. So you might see it uh, walking in circles. You might see it uh, chewing at itself, chewing at, you know, things. So uh, kennel crazy. Yeah. But is there a term? Is there, have we defined that? Like, is there a real definition in kennel animals or can we use the zoocosis terminology to define that when, you know, animals are left in kennels for too long? I mean, I will agree with Ashley that what we, we use is the term just kennel crazy. Um, Mm -hmm. And dogs develop kind of like OCD. You start seeing the the circling and you start seeing just the, the jumping. They, they're not acting normal and you can see that as early as three days after a a dog is placed in a confined area so it's just not okay mentally you know they Mm -hmm. they they don't act like dogs they don't they can't do the things that they need to do and you cannot expect the dog with especially aggressive behavior to be put in an area that they're isolated that they're not really worked with and you cannot expect them to just magically get better there's a lot of there's a lot of work, a lot of resources that need to be used to to rehabilitate these animals, and that's what you can do is rehabilitate. You can treat them, but you cannot cure them. You cannot cure behavior. You can control it. You have to understand what the triggers are going to be, and you got to set them up for success, not failure. A dog can be aggressive in one environment and not aggressive in another environment, and if you have the resources to identify that and to uh, properly make a placement then i'm all for it but just you know trying to hide the the behavior or minimize it um is just not is not safe and it's not okay going back to our earlier conversation about hoarding it's almost like because of some of these terms that the rescues are trying to live up to we're almost creating rescue hoarders because they can't empty their kennels oh absolutely there there are so many yeah there are a lot of shelters that are hoarders in my view and i wrote a blog a long time ago about you know rescue or hoarder when we don't know our limitations because Mm. there is the fear of being labeled as just, you know, just wanting to kill because you don't have the time, you don't have the resources. Um, so, so yeah, absolutely. We can create hoarding behavior by inappropriately explaining to people the need for euthanasia in certain situations. So I, I kind of want to go into the fear-free movement and I'm not, uh, I'm not fear-free certified, so I can't really speak uh, to their practices. I just want to talk about the medicating of, of dogs in shelters and medicating dogs just indefinitely after they're adopted. A, I think in theory, it's a good concept. However, my concern with that is getting somebody to continue that medication after the animal is adopted is very trusting. I, I think our community of people uh, just you know, sometimes when they adopt animals, they don't necessarily follow, you know, the, 
recommendations of the animal shelter. And so now we have what? an animal. <laughs> now we have an animal back in in the community that's off its meds. And I, I say that because I mean, that's a statement you hear all the time um, in just in general off its meds. And so what is your take on, I guess, medicating these animals in shelter settings in that aspect and then um, having a, you know, that a different or a, a behavior that is more acceptable uh, and more safe, but then having that propensity of, of that animal still uh, being off its meds at some point causing issues. So I think medication should be used as part of the process, but it should not be the process because medication is not, it's not real treatment for a dog, especially with aggression, dog or a cat, especially with aggression. And it just may control or decrease thresholds, but it doesn't eliminate it. So you do get into the problem of is the person adopting is going to continue on the medications that they need and so forth. But also there is a little bit of a false sense of security on medication when it's related to aggression. You may make the pet more calm, less likely to react, but you're not necessarily eliminating the possibility of reaction. We have seen it in practice. We will have animals that come in that are acting okay, and then all of a sudden they snap. And I'm sure that there is a trigger in there somewhere that we're just not recognizing, but regardless of what that is, it is not okay to have an animal that something could trigger it to all of a sudden want to bite your face off. So... Mm. I think that, again, medication is something, it's a tool, but it's not a solution. That makes sense. And I, yeah. I feel like that it doesn't matter whether you're talking animal or human. You right. Sh you always have to make sure that you are using all of the tools available to you, working on the training or, you know, in humans, therapists. You can't just take the medication and think that it is your magic that is going to right. make everything okay. Right. And then and just also think you can, I was just going to say, you can't also the, just immediately take them off of it because, Oh, they've been good for so long. Yeah. And now they're going right. to be okay. They're, they're going to be okay. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. And that's exactly what I was going to say. It's like you get into the issue of just cold Turkey, eliminating the medication from the system. And that can actually, worsen the previous behavior. We see it with anxiety, animals that are on anxiety medication and they're okay. And then they miss two, three days and then their anxiety just spikes. Um, so mm -hmm. you have a huge issue with not just the, what the medication can and cannot do, but what happens when the medication is removed. What I'd like to see though, and what I feel is, is unfortunate and, and this, this recent just kind of came up after writing my blog uh, about no chill. And really it seemed that I offended people about that. And, and that's not my goal. My goal is to raise awareness and, and to really try to figure out a way that we can be, you know, harmonious in the, in, I guess, in the act of saving and helping animals, but we also have to be responsible when we do that. And, and I think what I feel like, this is just my own personal experience. What I feel like is I've seen it, Bishop's seen it, and I'm sure Dr. G, you've seen it in certain settings as well. Is there's animals that we're trying and putting resources into that unfortunately are animals that should be saved because of that sa that safety that public health issue or that extreme you know maybe a terminal type of illness right and that, and I know if you look at like their some of their like 
it's not their missions, but their like their values or their, you know, what they say they do, what you say you do on paper and what you do actually in person are two different things. Right. And so that's my biggest thing is I'm not trying to make enemies. I'm just trying to figure out a way that we as an industry can move together without there being any sort of, I guess, uh, what's the word I'm looking like, there shouldn't be any animosity between people just trying to help. And I think that that's, what's happening is like, you have this one side that, you know, runs around with the save them all flag, um, and then gets upset when people question why we use that terminology. It's like the terminology is absolutely 1000% brilliant when it comes to raising funds. Uh, but it spreads the wrong message to the people that don't understand it. And we can go back and forth and they can come back on the podcast and we can talk about it. But I just want to see a community where we're putting forth our best interests to help animals that need help. It, and to clarify, based on conversations we've had, and I don't know if something has changed with conversations you've had, Dan. I think that to some degree that a lot of people in the industry specifically that are boots on the ground and deal with the things or have dealt with the things we have understand that, you know, there are these animals that we can't save. Um, but it's this mentality of we're going to use certain slogans out in the community and the community does not understand what that, what it means. They don't understand that, you know, we want to save the healthy, save the well-behaved and, and by healthy, I mean mentally and physically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and they, there's that mis misconception of, Oh no, we have to save everything by the community. So, you know, they've, they've told us before that there, if there's an animal that is too far, that's different. Um, but, but it's also so subjective, right? Well, yeah, there's that too. Absolutely. Um, and when you get that pressure though, from the community, you know, we're trying to change the dog catcher that, you know, kills everything. But when you have that, one dog that you have to euthanize well what travels faster good news or bad news and how many people does it take to you know fix hearing one thing of bad news yeah um and so having it be that it's not bad news to have an animal euthanized is what i think we need to change and i think first would be changing some of the the slogans that we hear and i mean i think here on the podcast we're not going to shy away from those conversations and i think at the end of the day we're here to help the community we're here to help people we're here to help animals and and that's i'll speak for the podcast specifically on that and you know i'm I'm not gonna we don't need to turn this into anything more than it is it's just maybe a disagreement on slogans and terms and how they're used and there's other ways to to really approach people um, in that aspect to help and, and raise funds to help people and, and help animals. And that's my goal. And I know um, Bishop, that's your goal. And mm-hmm. so as far as that goes, um, you know, again, I don't want to beat a dead horse pun intended just cause I'm a jerk, whatever. 
I keep it real though. That's just what I do. Uh, on that note, Bishop, we're going to modify it, but we're going to play the pick of the litter. I think we got to do that. So Dr. G, if you've heard the pick of the litter, great. If not, we're just going to throw you into it. Pick of the litter is just a game that we play really quick, rapid fire. You have to answer questions. We might modify some of those questions to better fit your profession because some of them are specific to animal control officers. All right. All right. So first and foremost, what is your official title? Uh, well, I'm the medical director and owner of the Rascal Unit, and I'm the director of Rascal Charities, which is a nonprofit that helps uh, support individuals in need of medical assistance. All right. How many times have you been bitten? Oh, a lot of times. Not <laughs> recently, but uh, especially in my younger years, I was just not afraid of anything. And I have a high tolerance for pain, so... Uh, I'm going to say probably at least 20 times, but most okay. likely to, a lot. I had to enough. quote you here in the answers and put, oh, a lot of times. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. All right. Your spirit animal, what would you say that is? <sighs> you know what? I would say probably a pit bull <laughs> or a pit bull tiger. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> because I am just, I um. I'm calm. People think that I may be a little rougher than I am, but if push comes to shove, I'm going to protect the those who need protected, and especially family and friends. Nice. What is your go-to snack? Hmm. I'm going to say anything potato-y. So whether it's <laughs> potato chips or fries, anything that's made out of potatoes, I love. You know, Dan, did you say something about mushrooms? Right now? Yeah, before she answered. No, not at all. Hmm. I totally heard you say something about mushrooms. I'm going to listen to the be, recording. You must be tripping, yo. <laughs> potatoes. So I just I just started making smashed potatoes. So you get those little, little potatoes. You boil them, right? You get them all soft. Then you get them on a baking sheet. You put a little olive oil and whatever seasonings you like, and then get a spoon and smash them down. Mm -hmm. Stop stop playing that's yeah you need to put those things. in the air fryer and they get nice and crispy well yeah. some of us aren't rich or even in the insta fryers yeah air, air fryers aren't that expensive dan well stop traveling <laughs> fair. fair um have you adopted an animal you've rescued i actually have not and I, all my animals have come from res, like rescue situations as far as uh, animal shelters and, and that kind of stuff. But I've been pretty good at not. I almost took a beagle. <laughs> almost. From the 4,000. From the 4,000, uh, yes. I almost took a beagle and I didn't. And it's I'm a horrible dog owner because I'm never home. So I have two cats. Yeah. That, yeah. That, I have two roommates, I should say. So, yeah, so, so that's why I didn't bring a, a dog, but yeah. What is your favorite piece of equipment in the veterinary setting? Oh, I guess it's going to be, I guess it's going to be my hands. I'm a really okay. skilled surgeon, so I think, you know, my hands is going to be the most important part. That I gotta protect. I like that. I like that. Yeah. 
if you could teach any class at a university, what would it be? I would, it would have to be forensics based, probably something with animal welfare and the relation of animal welfare and human welfare, kind of like the one health approach okay. and system. All right, Dan, I'm seeing what you're doing and uh, it's fine. What did Just you, keep it moving. <laughs> Just, what was the question for the emergency lights? <laughs> oh, let's come up with that. Okay. <laughs> I, it has, it has not, it doesn't have to be anything to do with emergency lights. So, okay. If you had to choose one or the other spay or neuter. Uh, spay because everybody can do a neuter and not a lot of people want to do spay. And I'm pretty I was going to say it, spays so. are the hard ones. Look at you. Yeah. And I enjoy, I enjoy the challenges and I'm, uh, I'm pretty good at spaying. I'm very efficient, so I'll take a spay. Okay, spay all day. Spay all day. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> no. What was what was your? Uh, or have you ever had a significant pyometra? Ooh. Oh yeah, I have a I have a Facebook page called uh, Rascal Extreme, where I put really like the things that most people don't want to look at. So nice. I'm going there. there now. Oh. Yeah. Oh yeah. We have like huge pyometras. I love opening them up and letting people imagine how bad they smell. So yeah, that's mm. an extreme on Facebook. Awesome. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And the last one, if you could do a ride along with anybody, anybody, who would it be? I want to say Melinda Merck. <laughs> Dr. Mark. She's nice. like, oh my God. She, I met her uh, in Vegas a couple of years ago at one of the conferences. And it's like, I want to be like her when I grow up. Aww, so I would love Dr. to Mark. spend time with her because she's so, she's so intelligent. She's so smart. She's so good at what she does. And she's such a great human being. Like I was really scared. I'm, I have social anxiety, so it's hard for me to introduce myself mm. to people. And after I approached her, she was so easy to talk to. So, yeah, I would love to spend time with her. And if you haven't, I mean, you probably have, but if our listeners haven't heard the episode with Dr. Mark, go, go back, check it out. I don't know how yes. many episodes ago it was, but it was, you know, we, we, we had her on. Uh, great, yes. great content. I did listen and to that episode. It was great. She, she's awesome. She's definitely someone yes. that is a, a wonderful resource in our community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, does that wrap up the pick of the letter? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> wow. Remember, folks, to spay and neuter. What did Bob Barker used to say at the end? Of, at the end of um, um. Remember, folks, spay and neuter. Yeah. I forget what he says. Spay and neuter. Yeah, uh, I think it was yeah. just spay that. Neuter just pets. spay and neuter your pets yeah. or something like that. Mm-hmm. So spay and neuter your pets. Uh, Doc, Doctor G, you got any questions for us before we wrap this thing up? No, this was great. Uh, thanks for doing what you're doing and getting the word out there. It's important. You you were excellent. You can Our listeners can find a link to your podcast on our page, humanemain.com. But if you want to go directly to Dr. G's page, remember that's forensics.vet. Uh, so check that out as soon as you can. And as always, we like to say thanks for listening. And Bishop, keep it humane. Man. Man. <laughs> Killed it this time, no pun intended. <laughs>